How's everybody doing? Come on, we got an extra hour of sleep last night, right? Yeah, the nine o'clock, man, it was, uh, all the conditions were perfect. The sun was out, we had extra hour of sleep, and I don't think the Titans are playing today, right? So like, everything is in alignment. We're, we're, we're in a good place. So everyone's at church, we're happy, it's good. So if you're new to the church, um, my personal sin is sarcasm. I lean on it a lot. And it's something that I need the Lord to help me with. And it'll probably come up multiple times in this sermon, um, but it's something I'm working through. But uh, if you're new to the church, we've been working through the book of Revelation. This is our third time through it. Uh, Church has been around for about nine and a half years, and I did it once in 2010, 2013, and then again, uh, we're doing it right now. Now, where we are in the story, if you've never gotten into Revelation, a lot of people are intimidated by this book. And granted, it is a complex book. It's It's a dense book. And we are right in kind of the thick of the complex parts of Revelation. But if you have been coming, I think you can agree, it's kind of amazing if we put a little bit of work, a little bit of study, a little bit of thought into it, we can get our heads around it. We can comprehend it and we can get some really applicable good stuff out of it. I hope that you've seen that so far. If you haven't been here though, let me kind of catch up to where we are. The first three chapters are very easy, pretty self-explanatory. It's a vision that God gave John, the author of the book of Revelation, and it was seven letters that were to be written to seven churches, and it came directly from the mouth of Jesus. So if you have a Bible, one of the red-letter Bibles, chapters two and three are are almost entirely in red because it's Jesus speaking directly to John, telling him what to write, okay? Now, chapter four kind of starts us down the path of getting a little bit more complex, John is spiritually kind of transported to heaven. He sees the throne room of God in chapter 4, a very famous chapter. In chapter 5, we see John kind of hone in on the hand of God. And in the hand of God, the right hand of God, is a scroll. And we understand or we come to learn that, that there's only one person who can handle or hold this scroll. God gives the scroll to Jesus Christ And then in chapter 6, we see that Jesus starts to break these seals on this scroll and unravel what what the scroll is. Now, the scroll is the future. It's the end of of time as we know it. It's how the universe will unravel. It's how the church will will, uh, be saved. It is everything that is going to happen at the end of time as we know it. That's why only one person can hold it, Jesus Christ. He's the only one capable of holding the future. And so chapter 6, we start to see these things unravel. We start to see that there's going to be war, and there's going to be famine, and pestilence, and death follows, and it says in chapter 6 that a quarter of the earth will die during these first six seals that take place. We see that the last seal, or not the last, but the last one we covered, the sixth seal, is this cataclysmic earthquake, and it says that uh, meteorites will hit the earth, and every island and every mountain will be changed geologically, and it says that people will be hiding under the rocks, and there's this epic question at the end of chapter 6, where these people who are afraid say, who can stand? And they're talking about against God's wrath. We answered that question last week. Who can stand are the people who will avoid God's wrath, and that are people that are followed Jesus Christ. People who have given their life to Him, they've trusted Him. Those people will not experience the wrath of God. That's who can stand. Now, as we get into chapter 7, again, this is a very controversial chapter. There's a lot of debate about this chapter. There's a lot of minors in this chapter. What I mean is there's a lot of things we can agree to disagree on. That's okay. 
But today we're going to talk about the 144,000. Maybe you've heard that term before. And we're going to talk about the multitude that are coming out of the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is the, the, the last kind of seven years of life as we know it here on planet Earth. Okay, and we're going to get into that a little bit today. Now, you should have a notes handout in front of you. I encourage you guys every week, keep those. Stick them in the back of your Bible. Stick them in a binder somewhere. Keep them in a folder. Do something with them. There's a woman that, that laminates those every single week that comes here and puts them in a binder. Do something to hold on to these. They will benefit you later. Maybe you want to do a Bible study or someone asks you a question. You'll have those resources, okay? If you have a smartphone, which hopefully you do, right? If you have a smartphone, you can download the Experience Community app. It's free. Click on services and sermon notes. All the scriptures there, the notes are there. Everything will be on the screens this morning if you don't have any of those things. If you have a Bible, we're in the last book of the Bible. We're in the seventh chapter. It's short. We'll go through it relatively quick. And um, there is some applicable, a couple of uh, really applicable things that we can get from this chapter, and we'll talk about those at the end, okay? All right, so we should be set. Let's pray. Let's jump into this, and um, you guys can go enjoy. Is this still sun still shining out there? Is that good? Did it freak anyone else out to wake up this morning and it actually like, be like a light outside? That was nice, right? It was wonderful. It's pretty depressing when you wake up to take your kids to school and it still looks like it's midnight. I hate that feeling. It's awful. So it was nice to see the sun this morning. It was good. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you. Um, God, keep your hand on us today. Lord, we pray that as we get into your word today, a very, very complex chapter, we pray that we can learn some things, God, that we can apply to our daily lives, that we can learn a little bit more about the future, learn a little bit more about your people, God, and what's going to happen, and we pray that it's a blessing to us, God, to the church. Lord, we also pray for every church in our city. We pray for every nonprofit in our city. We pray for all people in our city that don't believe in you, God, that we can be the light and that we can share your truth with them and that they can find this truth, God, and apply this truth and find joy and contentment and salvation through it, God. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and um, we give this day to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, chapter seven, here we go. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on the trees. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east who had the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites, from the tribe of Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and from the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so if you weren't here last week, there are seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. We have gone through six of the seven seals, and then there is a pause. Chapter seven is the pause. And that kind of shows us what's going on with the people of God during the seals. Okay, so we pause for a second. Now, as John is looking up, he's, he's, he's up looking down, I'm sorry, he's looking down on the earth, and he is seeing these four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the winds before these next judgments of God 
take place. Now, when it says four corners, there's not literally four corners of the earth. It's a sphere. I hope everyone knows it's a sphere. It's a sphere. And he's looking down, but he's seeing the north, south, east, and west, that these angels, angels are keeping back these judgments of God. So we're going to see the state of the church during the seals in chapter 7. Now, the four winds are judgments. They're kind of personified. If you've never heard this before, you go back to the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah, and it talks about these winds of judgment. But before these winds of judgment are going to be unleashed on humanity, there is a group of people who are going to be sealed by God by this fifth angel that comes up out of the east. I don't know if there's any connection. The sun rises, right, from the east. I don't know if there's any connection there. But this angel is going to rise from the east, and he's going to seal this 144,000. Now, this is not the same kind of seal as chapter 6 that are being broken and it's unleashing these different horses and riders and seals. It's not the same thing. This is a seal that marks protection from God's judgment. Whoever has this seal is not going to be judged by God. They're not going to experience the wrath of God. Now, this seal that they receive is also different from Ephesians 1.13, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, that when we give our life to Jesus, we are sealed with the, with the Holy Spirit. This is not salvation. This is a seal that marks ownership and it marks protection. Later on in the book of Revelation, there's going to be another seal that is given to another group of people that is the exact opposite. We call that the mark of the beast. And I don't believe it to be a literal mark on their foreheads or their hands. I believe it's going to be a metaphorical, a spiritual mark just like these 144,000 are spiritually marked for God, okay? That's going to be, we'll get to that later. So who is the 144? Now, I put that there's only two logical ways to look at the 144, and I'm not trying to be a jerk here today. There are some very illogical ways that people look at the 144,000. One of those is Jehovah's Witness. They think that this is them, right? We are the 144,000. There's 8 million Jehovah's Witness in the United States, right? So that kind of sucks if you're a Jehovah's Witness, right? Like those odds don't work very well for me if I'm a Jehovah's Witness. And that's, that's just me being logical. I'm not trying to be a jerk. All right, logic plays a part in all this, though. So the 144,000 only has two logical things that it can be. The first one is the 144,000 is a group of Jewish people, a remnant, a small part of, of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel that is left because God made a promise to them never to wipe them out. The second option that it can be is it can be a group of end-time Christians that are left on earth after everyone else is raptured out before the tribulation. You guys probably already know where I stand on this one. And so the first view that we're going to talk about is called the covenant view. This is the idea that the modern-day church, you and I, have replaced the Jews because the Jewish people have rejected Jesus. These people think that when you read the New Testament and it says Israel, it's actually referring to the church, Christianity. They believe that one has, God has one promise, one covenant, and it's called grace. It operates through different groups, and since we, the Bible says, have been grafted in, that we now have taken the place of the Jews, and we are the focus of God's grace and promise. That's called replacement theology, and I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, I don't agree with it. I do not think that is what God is doing with the Jews. So that leads us to the second option. The second option is called the dispensational view. 
This is the view that God, God has not forgotten the Jews. But since they did initially reject Jesus Christ, that Christianity carries the torch of the message of Jesus until the Jewish people, or at least a remnant of them, have a revelation of who Jesus Christ is. That would be called the fullness of the Gentiles. They believe that when you read the New Testament and it says Israel, it means Jews. And when you read about the church, it means Christians, that they are different and that the Jewish people will eventually be restored. So again, who is it? Well, it depends on how you view this. If you subscribe to the covenant view, you believe this 144,000 are an exact amount of sealed Christians. So all the Christians are raptured out before the, the seven years of tribulation. God leaves 144 there, and they are the ones that tell other people about Jesus. That's, that's the covenant view. The second view would say that the number 144,000 is symbolic. It's not an exact number, it's a symbolic number. And they are left there, this remnant, because God made a promise to them, Jeremiah 31 talks about this promise, that God has made a promise to the Jews that he will never wipe them out, that he's always gonna take care of them until he comes back, okay? Again, that's where I land. If you don't land there, it's okay, right? We can still love each other even though we can disagree with each other, it's fine. So when it comes to portions of Revelation like this 144,000 that we may disagree on, there has to be kind of a, a thought that permeates both views that we should be able to take from that. And I think the thought is this. Regardless if it's a bunch of Jews or if it's a bunch of left-behind Christians, the point is God is sovereign. The point is God makes a promise and he's going to keep his promise regardless of how bad things get. Whether it's Jews or Christians, we know that God is sovereign and he keeps his word, okay? But this is a very complicated piece of, of scripture. One of the things that makes it so complicated is the 12 tribes it mentions aren't even the same 12 tribes as in the Old Testament. The, the, the tribe of Dan isn't even listed in there. So it's very, very different. It's very, very complicated. And there's a lot of speculation, okay? But we can agree on the major points. God is sovereign. God keeps his promises, okay? Next part. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne. And along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders asked me, who are these people in the white robes and where did they come from? John said, sir, you know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Okay. So the first half of chapter seven focuses on a small group of people on earth. The second half of chapter seven focuses on a number of people and angels so big that no one could count and they're in heaven. These people represent every nation, 
every tribe, every people, every language. Listen, if you don't like diversity, you will not like heaven. <laughs> it's going to be an extremely diverse place. Lots of colors, lots of languages, lots of different styles of worship, and it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be very complex and very, very beautiful, very, very diverse. And they're all standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus Christ. This vast multitude are clothed in white robes. We've talked about that a lot. Symbolizes purity. And they're holding palm branches in their hands, and they're worshiping, and they're crying out in a loud voice as they worship God. Now, palm branches are mentioned in the Gospels when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem a week before his crucifixion. People are laying down palm branches, and they're celebrating. Palm branches would have been the biblical equivalent to balloons. It would have been festive. It would have been something that marked joy. It was a party. So here's the thing. Not only will heaven be diverse, it's going to be a huge celebration. People are going to be happy. They're going to be celebrating. They're going to be running around dancing and singing, and they're going to have these palm branches wearing their white robes. Now, why is it such a celebration? The first reason why it's such a celebration is these people have, an, they have escaped an eternity apart from their creator. Now, whether you believe hell is literal fire or not is irrelevant. It is. Now, I know some people would argue with me about that. Is it literally fire or not? I don't know if it's literally fire or not. I don't care. I know that it is an eternal separation from God, and whatever that looks like, it's bad. So these people... We're celebrating because they're not going to be eternally separated from their creator. That's the first reason why they're celebrating. Here's the reason I like. They are really celebrating because they have been saved from themselves. They have been saved from the mistakes that they had made. They have been saved from the abuse of people that they have done to them. They are saved from the sadness of this world, the death, the destruction, children going hungry, children being taken advantage of, women being abused, all these awful things, they are saved from that. They are saved from the heartbreak of this world, the things that they've endured in this life that are terrible. They have been saved from that as well. That's why they're worshiping. That's why they're celebrating. And the angels join in on this celebration. Imagine being John standing at the back of this watching this, right? Imagine all the angels join into this celebration along with these four creatures that we talked about in Revelation chapter 4 that circle the throne and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, was and is and is to come. They join in. The elders, not all of them because we'll see here in a second, but 23 of the 24 elders, they also join in and they are worshiping along. And what they're worshiping and what they're acknowledging is God's goodness, not our goodness, God's goodness. They say, it's your glory. It's your wisdom, it's your honor, it's your power, it's your strength. It's not humanity's goodness. This needs to be your homework this week. The second half of Romans chapter seven, where, where Paul is talking about there's nothing good inside himself. He says, I wanna do good, but I don't have the capacity to do good. I, I, I wanna think good thoughts, but I don't have the capacity to think good thoughts. But he says, because I'm imperfect, the perfect Holy Spirit that lives in me gives me the ability to do the right thing. It's not because I'm good, it's because I have invited goodness inside me that I can do good things. All the credit, all the glory, all the honor, all the accolades does not fall on us ever, it falls on Jesus Christ. It is all about his goodness and his grace for us. And that's why they're worshiping. 
So again, who are they? Who are these people? This huge multitude of people. I say that not all of the 24 elders were worshiping because one of them sneaks around the crowd. He comes up to John and says, hey, John, who are these people? Who are these people with the palm branches and the white robes? Who are they? And John, he goes, I don't know, sir, you know. You, this is where you are. You know what's going on. So all of these people in the white robes and the palm branches, these are all the followers of God throughout history. But here's what's interesting. The number keeps getting bigger. Why? Why are more and more people being added to this party as John is watching? And the, and the elder tells him why. He says, these are the people who are coming out of the great tribulation. These are the people who are being murdered for their faith. These are the people who are dying for what they believe in, and they're being added to this party. Now, let me pause here for a second so I don't forget this point. We talk about how hard life can be, and I'm talking about real bad. If you remember a couple years ago, there was footage of, of radical ISIS and ISIL people lining up Christians on the beaches of Lebanon, sawing their heads off one by one, right? Now, let me give you some imagery here to counteract that gory, awful imagery of people being decapitated for their faith. When those people woke up who had their heads sawed off, they woke up in this scene in chapter 7. They woke up into this glorious party, right? Was it awful on earth? Yes, but when they woke up, they had palm branches in their hands, a white robe on their bodies, and they are celebrating with all of heaven. They are worshiping God in all of his glory. They're coming out of the great tribulation. This term refers to the last seven years as life as we know it. So whenever we talk about the Great Tribulation, this is the last seven years. Jesus talked about this time in the book of Matthew. He said it will be a time of great distress, unprecedented hard times. And the only way that this multitude that was being added to in heaven, the only way they could get from earth to heaven was they had to wash their robes and make them white in the blood of the lamb. Look at that terminology. It is graphic. It is vivid, it is provocative, and it's meant to be. All you moms in this room know what happens when you get blood on white clothes, right? You moms go crazy and start doing all this like weird witchcraft stuff on clothes, like soda water and spitting on stuff and rubbing stuff. Just get ice, right? You know, like all this crazy stuff because you know that blood stains white. Look at this graphic imagery though. This elder says the only way we can be made pure is to dip ourselves in the blood of Christ. It's the only way we can come out white. It shows us that the only thing that can cleanse our souls and make us what we need to be, the only way we can be reconciled with God is through the blood that Jesus shed for our sin. But here we are right now, you and I, and we try every means possible to try to somehow fill that void, to find that contentment, to find that purpose, to find that identity. We find it in our houses, in our cars, in our bank statements. We find it in the color of our skin, our sexual preference. We find it in our gender. We find it in our nationality. We find it in absolutely everything, and it keeps coming up short. And the reason why it keeps coming up short is the only thing that can make us whole is the cross. It is the only thing that can do it. He doesn't give any other reason. John, the reason why they're celebrating is one reason, the blood of the lamb. It is because they have chosen to dip their robes in the blood of the lamb and they come out white, they come out pure, okay? He goes on and he says, for this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. 
The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He says, for this reason, they're in front of the throne. All of these people in white have given their life for Christ because they understood that Christ had already given his life for them. That's why they are there. And the elder says that they serve him day and night in the temple. Now, we have to do a little bit of study here. One, the word serve there doesn't mean to work for, it means to worship. So they're worshiping him day and night. Well, there is no day and night in heaven. There is no sun. All of our light comes from Jesus Christ. There is also no temple in heaven. It says this later on. There is no temple. The whole thing is the temple. We are in perfect community with God. So what does that mean? It is a metaphor that God will be with us all the time. We will never be apart from him again. We will be worshiping. We will be in community with him forever and ever for all time. We're going to be secure forever. The elder also points out some blessings of heaven. One, he says, God will shelter them. That literally means to dwell with. It's not just that God is going to protect us. He's going to hang out with us. Think about that that we're gonna to get to walk around and laugh and, and have a good time. And there's these allusions to us having banquets and celebrations and being able to walk around a new earth and celebrate a new heaven and all these things that we're gonna to get to do. It's not just that this God of a cosmos, that some ambiguous force is going to be a literal person, God, walking around, spending time with his people. He will shelter us, he will dwell with us. It says we will, not, we will never again hunger or thirst. It gets on later into the book of Revelation, talks about the tree of life that produces 12 different kinds of fruit that will feed the nations, that will sustain them forever. We will never hunger or thirst again. And we talk about hunger and thirst like it's some kind of third world problem or it's somewhere else. I don't know if you guys know this or not, the majority of our elementary schools in this town are free and reduced lunch schools. That means that a majority of those kids eat only at school for breakfast and lunch. That a lot of kids in your neighborhoods, in your areas, at your kids' schools, don't have the things that they need, the necessities they need to live a healthy life. My wife sits on the PTO at a very nice school here in town, but it's a public school, and they keep extra clothes in the office because a lot of those children's families can't afford to get them new clothes. So they wear the same clothes over and over again. And so the, the schools will give them things. Guys, I'm gonna, I'm, let me get up on a soapbox just for a second. There is something wrong with Christianity in the United States when we build buildings that are worth tens of millions of dollars and kids in the local schools don't have enough food to eat. Are you guys okay with that? Does that not indicate a problem within us? Oh, you socialist. I'm not a socialist. I'm a Christian. And I care about those that have less than me. So we should be doing more for them. Our church, you guys, you probably don't know this or not, we give somewhere in the neighborhood of $35,000, $36,000 a year away to local schools because the schools don't support these kids the way that they should. And we should be stepping up and doing something about that. We talk about famine and hunger like it's something that only happens in another continent. It's right here. And it's a problem. And the church is called to deal with it. 
It also says that the sun will no longer strike them. The sun will no longer strike them because there is no need for a sun anymore. They have the light of Jesus Christ and it's with them at all times. The sun, sun will no longer strike them. And it also says neither will any scorching heat. This could be a reference to the warfare that is going on. This could be a reference to weapons that are being used against people. This could be a reference to people being burned alive for their faith. There are stories, if you research this, I don't really advise it, but there are stories, if you research this, if you look at like Voice of the Martyrs and different organizations like that, where they have stories of children being thrown in fires because their parents wouldn't accept or, or I'm sorry, or deny Jesus Christ as their savior. And so it could be a reference to that. And then maybe the most interesting thing he says in this last passage is he says that the lamb that is in the center of the throne will also shepherd them. That's odd, that the lamb is also the shepherd and that this lamb will lead us to springs of the waters of life and that God will wipe away every single tear. There will be no depression. There will be no anxiety. There will be no fear. There will be no pain. God will wipe away all of that. Now, here's the thing, though, guys. If we're to get to this scene, if we're to get to this heaven, right, if we're to get from this life to the next, there has to be some proper expectations that you and I as Christians, if you're a Christian in this room, and if you're not, these should be proper expectations of Christians. If you're a non-believer in here and you just want to know, this is something that Christians should believe. We need to have some proper expectations. The first one is this. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we avoid suffering. <laughs> if a church ever tells you that being a Christian means you avoid suffering, they have not read their Bible. How can you say that, Corey? Because I'm going to quote Jesus, God in flesh. He said, in this life, there will be suffering. I think that sums that up, prosperity gospel. I think it has taken care of that. But here's the other thing. Though you should expect to suffer in this life, you should also expect to overcome suffering by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the rest of the verse that Jesus says is, in this life there will be suffering, or in this world there will be suffering. But he says, take heart, because I've overcome the world. I've overcome that. So are we going to suffer? Yes, we're going to suffer. But are we overcomers? Absolutely, absolutely we are, as long as we have the Holy Spirit. We will overcome that. We also have to have the expectation that the cross can cover any sin. I said this last week, I have known murderers, I have known child pornographers, I have known rapists, I have known thieves, I have known embezzlers, I have known every kind of person. And I've also seen God forgive all those people. I have seen all of those people find hope and restoration in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ can cover any and forgive any sin if, I underlined if, if we will humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness. Do you know the only thing that God won't forgive? the sin you will not ask forgiveness for. That is called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and he will not forgive it because you have not asked for his forgiveness. Arrogance and pride and entitlement stop us from seeking repentance, and when we fail to seek repentance, God will not forgive us. Now, let me tell you what sin really is. Sin is other gods. What that means is this, whenever we put anything above God, it becomes a God in our life and it becomes a sin. That can come in addiction, it can come in sex, it can come in drugs, it can come in Netflix, it can come in sports, it can come in anything that we put above our relationship with God. It becomes another God in our life and it becomes a sin. 
Now, something we need to expect if we're a Christian is God, the true God, will not occupy the same space as another God. He will not do it. Let me tell you a story that I've told at this church a gazillion times, but I love telling it, so you get to hear it again. In the Old Testament, there was two opposing groups, the Jews and the Philistines. They didn't like each other very much. One of their most epic battles was in a valley. There was a kid named David and this big tall guy named Goliath. David came out on the good end of that, killed him, cut his head off. We won that one. There was another battle where the Philistines came in and they overcame the Jews. And when they overcame the Jews, they stole what was called the Ark of the Covenant. It was a gold box about this big. It had these two angels on top. It said the glory of God was visible on top of this ark, and the ark represented, it contained some miraculous things in it, but it represented the Spirit of God. The Jews took it everywhere they went. And so the Philistines came in, and they stole, if you will, the presence of God. They take the presence of God, this ark, and they put it in their temple that was built to Dagon, one of their gods, half fish, half human. So they put the Ark of the Covenant in this huge room with this 35, 40-foot-tall statue of their god, Dagon, right? They come in the next day, and the statue of Dagon had fallen down facing the Ark. They walk in, they're like, well, that's weird. That's not how we left Dagon last night. So they got a bunch of people together. They, they picked Dagon up. By the way, if you have to help your god up, you probably shouldn't worship that god, but <laughs> they helped Dagon up, right? They, <laughs> they put Dagon back up on his pedestal, and they're like, you're good, Dagon, we're good. All right, they go back, they come back the next day, and not only has Dagon fallen over again, the head and the hands had been severed. Now, listen, the Philistines learned a very biblical lesson that day. The true God will not share the same room as another God. So what the Philistines did is they took the ark and they got a hold of the Jews and they said, hey, we're going to give this back to you, right? We don't want this around because it tends to destroy our gods. But here's what we get from that story. We are the temple according to the New Testament. And whenever we try to put the Holy Spirit in here and other things that are gods, it doesn't work. One's got to go. So we have to repent for those sins. We have to repent for those idols that we have in our life. And only when we empty ourselves of our other gods can we put the true God in our heart. That's an expectation that we must have. But here's the thing. If we fail to do that, we cannot expect change in our life. We cannot expect it. Well, Corey, I don't feel God. It's because there's too much in here. He doesn't have any room to work in your life. I can't hear God. There's too many distractions. There's too many unrepentant sins. He can't cut through it to speak to you. We've got to empty ourselves of those things or we cannot expect positive change. But if we do, if we do get rid of those sins, if we do repent, we can find hope regardless of what is going on around us. And we need to be reminded that this life is temporary and the things that we value are fleeting. We're about to go into the Christmas season, right? This season of love. What a crock, right? We're going to knock down doors and step over old women so we can get to a TV that we're going to throw away in three years. We're going to go into massive amounts of debt so we can give our kids all this garbage they're not going to play with. And instead of putting them through college, we just get them all this junk that we're going to give to Goodwill. 
And so we pursue all these things that don't really hold any value. Not just material things. Again, like I said earlier, where we find our identity in our bank account or our sexual preference or, or you know, I, even, even in our marriage and things that aren't necessarily bad things, but we find our hope in things that can be taken for us. They're fleeting. And this is not fixing the problem. In a culture that tells you you can define anything you want, reality is up to you, in a culture that tells you that you define your own reality, suicide rates are going out the window. They're breaking through the ceiling. We're killing ourselves in record numbers in a culture that says you can define your own reality. It is not working. It is not working. We are putting our hope and our trust in things that are not eternal. They're not secure. A relationship with Christ, on the other hand, is eternal. It gives us hope and it gives us peace regardless of the circumstances. Do you know the difference between happiness and contentment? Happiness is contingent on circumstances. Contentment is not. Happiness is contingent on what's going on around me. Contentment is my fulfillment regardless of what's going on around me. It's deeper than happiness. So I don't ask you to pursue happiness. I ask you to pursue contentment, joy, a deep-seated thing that you have between you and your creator. So even if the entire world around you is self-destructing and hurting everyone in the process, we still have contentment and joy because we are connected to something deeper than culture and society and fantasies and things that are made up and things that will not stand. So what we pull from this chapter is that God keeps his promises. But I want to tell you, we were never promised that this was going to be easy. It's not in that Bible. It's not there. We are promised in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, though. He says, but I will be with you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. I will always, is it going to be easy? No, but you're going to be okay because I'm there. I'm with you. My spirit is with you until I come back. So though we're never promised it's going to be easy, we are promised that we can make it, that we, we can endure, that the Bible says we're more than overcomers in all of this. And not only that, I don't know why this, this, this scripture always chokes me up, but Jesus was looking at his disciples one time, and he said, in my Father's house are many rooms. Many translations say mansions, but if you, if you translated it accurately, it says rooms, this idea that God has this huge home and he's got place for all of you. And then Jesus goes on to say, if that weren't true, I wouldn't have told you. I wouldn't have brought it up if it weren't true. It's a promise that if we will stick with him through the hard times, when we make a mistake, if we will go back and ask for forgiveness, let, 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 me, let me alleviate some stress and pressure off you right now. You're going to screw up. But here's the thing, it's not a question of if you're gonna screw up, it's a question of what do you do afterwards? Do you humble yourself? Do you go in front of Christ and say, God, I'm so sorry, I don't wanna live like this, help me. And not only will God forgive you for this, but if we will turn from the things that cause us to screw up, God can make us better. We can grow to be more like him. We can make it. We are promised a reward for our dedication. And not just a reward to be taken care of. We are promised a one-on-one, -on -one, literal, personal relationship with the Creator God. Perfect joy. Perfect community. 
There will be no more famine. There will be no more death. There will be no more war or racism or hatred. There will be no more kids that are starving. There will be no more any of that. It says he will wipe away every single tear, every single tear. But we've got to hold on. We've got to go back. Every time we make a mistake, we've got to go back and say, God, you got to help me. You got to help me. I'm sorry. Help me up. I want to turn from these things. I want to do the right thing. Forgive me. And he will. Paul said we receive grace upon grace over and over and over again. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, if you're in this room and you have made mistakes, you may be in the middle of a mistake right now. There may be things that you've done, choices you've made. I want to encourage you. I want to implore you. I'll beg you if I have to. Take this opportunity today to tap into a promise that God has for you. That if we will be humble if we will ask God to forgive us, and if we will turn from those things, God has not only joy for us right now, we can find joy right now. We can find contentment. And let, let me be honest with you guys, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. Joy and contentment for me, Corey Trimble, are sometimes very elusive. It's hard for me sometimes. But do you know why? It's not God's fault. It's because I have not leaned on him the way I should. I have not been as close to him as I should. So for those of you in the room who struggle with fulfillment, you struggle with peace and joy, I encourage you, rid yourselves of yourselves. Anything that has become a God in your life that is not the true God, any unrepentant sin, ask God to take those things and then ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit. The Bible says he gives us joy unspeakable, full of glory, that he will give us that. But we have to lean on him. We have to depend on him. We have to just, just utterly give everything to him. We have to be desperate for him. If you're in this room and, and maybe you're either a new Christian or maybe you're on the fence and you don't know what you believe, but you're curious, up here to my right, your left, is Dave. If you have any questions, come up here and talk to Dave. He's not a scary guy. He's a nice guy. He'll have answers for you. He'll pray with you if you want him to. Come up here and talk to Dave. If you're in this room and you need prayer for anything, if you want to confess a fault or a sin, there's men and women up here at the front. They'd love to pray with you. They'd love to wrap arms around you or hold hands or however you feel comfortable, and just, and just bear those burdens with you and pray with you. There's also communion all the way around you. And guys, I talk about this every week, but I don't want you to forget how big of a deal communion is. Right now, today, before you leave this room, you have the opportunity to say, God, I'm sorry. We can repent for our sin. We can take the communion, and you can leave this building clean. Dipping your soul in the blood of Christ and leaving this place white as snow. Doesn't mean that life's going to be perfect. Doesn't mean that there's not suffering out there. But you will have the Holy Spirit and you'll be equipped to deal with it, to handle it. You can do that today. 
and I encourage that today. Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you, Lord. I love everyone in this building right now. I pray, God, blessings over them. I pray that you protect them, keep them, keep them safe, Lord. God, whatever struggles, whatever lack of contentment, lack of joy, any lack of purpose or fulfillment, I pray, God, that we can just empty ourselves of ourselves, God, and, and, and fill ourselves up with you, give our lives to you, lean on you more, God. Sustain us, Lord. And Lord, let us know that you have promised us hope. You have promised us an eternity. You've promised us joy and community with you, God. We love you and we thank you and it's all in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you, guys.